Uh, Take your Bibles out tonight, and I want to ask you to find uh, three different passages of Scripture. Beginning tonight, a series in here, of course, on stewardship. Stewardship, well done, good and faithful servant. And so if you would find Colossians chapter 1, and then after finding Colossians chapter 1, if you would find Hebrews chapter 11, and then after finding Hebrews chapter 11, if you would find Matthew 25. So Colossians 1, Hebrews 11, and Matthew 25. Am I a little bit loud, maybe just a touch? A little bit loud? Maybe Jonathan just a half a tick down maybe, not too much, but anyway. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, and I want you to read with me uh, beginning in verse 12. Look at what Paul says there. He says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Shared a story with you last year, I think it bears repeating, it goes like this, that somewhere in the world there is a country with 220 million people in the population. 84 million are over 60 years of age, which leaves 136 million to do the work. People under 20 years of age total 95 million, which leaves 41 million to do the work. There are 22 million employed by the government, which leaves 19 million to do the work. Deduct 14,800,000, the number in state and city offices, and that leaves 200,000 to do the work. There's 188,000 in hospitals and mental institutions, so that leaves 12,000 to do the work. It is of interest to note that in this country, 11,998 are in jail, so that just leaves two people to do do the work. And that's you and me, brother, and I'm getting tired. (laughs) Maybe sometimes you feel that way. Folks, the truth of the matter is that we are all stewards. We are all stewards. I want you to see that tonight in just sort of the introductory message in in this series. We're going to be talking about stewardship in a lot of different areas over the next five weeks. But we need to see that we are all stewards. And listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.1. He says, this is how one should regard us as, as servants of Christ. And stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. And then moving on to 2 Corinthians 4, listen to what Paul says there. He says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but 
by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Folks, every single one of us in here tonight, we need to catch the vision that we are stewards. A steward can't be passive. He cannot sit back and be satisfied to let everybody else do the work or everybody else carry his load. Because the fact of the matter is, we have an appointment date with Christ. Every one of us will stand before the Bema seat of Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, and we will have to give an account of our lives to God. And so we need to be concerned about this matter of stewardship. Now, I've told you before, this is something that the church today needs to be very mindful of and very careful of. And I'll tell you why. Church is a little different today than some of you remember from 30 or 40 years ago. We're kind of in the Walmart age, aren't we? The Walmart age. The little mom and pop organizations go out of business, right? And they're, they're replaced by the Walmarts and the Sam Clubs and places like that. Okay, you come over into the church and apply that. What's happening in the church today? Both good and bad. I mean, you can, you can see good and bad in it, but what's happening in the church today? The, the, the mega church, churches, uh, uh, fewer churches are getting... Uh, bigger and bigger. And, and, and we're blessed to be considered at least one of the larger churches around here. Even though by the standards of some of the mega churches in Charlotte we're pretty small. But still by nationwide standards we're considered big. And what happens in a big church oftentimes? People come in and disappear in the crowd, right? Anonymity. Boy, back in the old days, couldn't be that way, could it? 40, 50, 70 people in a congregation. Everybody had to pitch in. Everybody had to help. Everybody had to do something. Everybody had to be a steward because it took everybody pulling together. But now, in the day and age we're in now, people oftentimes look for the bigger church so they can disappear in the crowd. Enjoy programming, but not have to do anything. Right? Does that impact stewardship? Yes. So again, it's just something we've got to be careful of today. There's less accountability. And yet the Bible tells us there really isn't less accountability. Now, the first thing I want you to see with me tonight, again, as we just sort of set the table this evening, uh, I want you to see 
two worlds. Two worlds. Okay? From Colossians 1, 12 to 13. Every person on this earth is a citizen of one of two different worlds. If he is an unbeliever, what kind of kingdom does he belong to? The kingdom of darkness. Colossians 1.13 makes reference to that, right? If he's a Christian, he is a member of the world. What kind of kingdom? Kingdom of light. And Paul says what we ought to be very grateful for as believers, as God has saved us, what he's done is lifted us out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of light. Now, let's think about the world of darkness a minute because we know that each world has its own set of values. Now, the Bible uses the word darkness to describe the world of sin. This darkness which entered the world at the fall uh, is the domain of Satan and his spirit helpers, the demons. Now, like physical darkness, this spiritual darkness blinds. It prevents people from seeing the truth and it blinds their eyes so that they don't even know where they're going. Since people living in darkness don't understand what life is all about as God intended, their actions are unfruitful. In Ephesians 5.11, Paul talks about the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Now, as believers, we've not been delivered from the environment uh, of this dark world. We live here even though we're not to be a part of it. And so we are exposed to the values of this dark order. But even though we can't escape the world, we're not to take part in the uh, in the perverse thinking and actions that occur in this world. The Bible says we are to be a separate and we are to be a distinctive people. We're to be different from the people of the world. And what is one thing that, that characterizes people of the world? They're consumers, right? Consumers. What are people as a part of this dark age concerned with? Stuff, comfort, pleasure. I mean, after all, what do they what do they live? What do they have to live for? All they have to live for is this world, right? And so they become consumers. And boy, we live in a consumer age, don't we? Well, not only is there the world of darkness, but there's the world of light. 1 John 1, 5 says, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. He makes us children of light and children of the day. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 5, we're no longer children of the darkness or children of the night doing the things that people of the night enjoy to do, but we are now children of the day. God is insistent that His children think and behave in accord with the light that He's declared. 
So let's think tonight, before we get into uh, looking at this parable about about stewardship, let's think of the, the two distinct kinds of worlds that all of us in here are exposed to. Because again, even if you're a part of the kingdom of light, which I hope you are, nonetheless, we live under the domain, uh, 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 we live in the domain, but not under the control of the kingdom of darkness. Well, I want you to see, secondly, building values. Building values. Look over at Hebrews 11 and read with me verses 25 to 27. In verse 25, it's talking about Moses. i tell you what, let's back up to verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is visible." Now, God provides in His Word all that we need to know to make the right choices. And also, God gives us role models along the way. Moses would be one of these role models. Now, let's think about him for a minute. First thing I want you to notice about his life is a foundation of faith. Look at what verse 27 said about it. We're going to actually work backwards in these verses. He says here that by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, uh, for he endured as seeing him who is visible. What is it that governed Moses' life? What is it that governed all the lives of the people in Hebrews 11? Faith. In fact, what do we call this chapter? The roll call of faith. Faith characterized his life. He had that foundation of faith. Moses had a foundation of faith in God and his revealed word. He understood that God, though invisible, was at work in his life and in his world. The foundation for his life was outside of himself. His faith was in the true and the living God. Now folks, your and my view of life likewise must rest on the foundation of faith in God and his truth. It's got to be a foundation outside of ourselves. It's that foundation our lives built upon faith in God. A foundation of faith. Not only a foundation of faith, but I want you to notice his values based on faith. What does it say in verse 26? He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses valued the things of God more than he valued all of the treasures of Egypt. And he was raised in Pharaoh's household. All of the riches of Egypt at his disposal. 
And yet he valued the treasures of God and God's people more. He based his values on his foundation of faith in God. Where are our values? What are our values based on? And in a minute, when we see about stewardship, this has everything to do with stewardship. The foundation of your life and who you're living for and what you're living for and and where you're laying up your treasures, it has everything to do with the stewardship of your life. So what are your values based on? Well, I want you to see next about Moses' choices based on values. Verse 25 says... He chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. What would most people have said about Moses in that day? Moses, you are crazy. You're nuts. You've got it all and you are throwing all of that away to go out and hang out with the Hebrews and be their leader Out in the wilderness. You're crazy. But where was Moses' foundation and where was his value system? It was in God. And so he made choices in keeping with that faith and those values. He rejected a life of ease in in the Pharaoh's palace, choosing instead to suffer alongside of his fellow Israelites. He rejected a life of status, life of power, life of wealth, life of worldly fame in favor of a life with the slaves. And now again, the world would have said that makes no sense. But it did to Moses. Folks, do you understand that your choices and my choices reflect our values? They do. Our choices reflect our values. I mean, let's be honest. Somebody could look at our checkbooks. Somebody, of course, who does checkbooks anymore? We do online stuff, right? But anyway, somebody could look at our online activities. Somebody could look at how we're spending our time. What are we giving ourselves to in our leisure? And what's that going to tell somebody about our lives? What we deem to be important. What our values are. Moses' choices reflected his values. Now that brings us to this parable that Jesus told back in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25 beginning in verse 14. Listen to what Jesus said. For it will be like a man. Now what's what's the it that he's talking about here? What's the it that he's talking about here? The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. He says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. 
He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scatter no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now having been delivered from the darkness and made members of God's kingdom of light. And having adopted God's values instead of the world's values. The believer's life is to take on an added significance. Every believer has one primary occupation. He is to be a steward or a manager of everything that God has entrusted to him. Now let's think a minute about this issue of ownership. Who who owns it all? God does. What's the Bible say in the Psalms? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. that's, That's the ancient way of saying God owns all of it. He owns all the cattle. He owns all of the hills. Read Isaiah 40. How it describes God, the one who, is, who has scooped out the oceans with his hands, who's flung all the, the stars in space. He's created everything. He owns it all. And so that means that you and I are just stewards. We're not owners. We are not owners. We are stewards. Okay? And we're stewards of everything. We're stewards of our life. What what does the Bible say about our life? You have been what? Bought with a price. Not silver and gold, but with the blood, the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been bought at a price. God created you and redeemed you. Your life, my life, belong to God. We don't own it. God owns it. God can take it away. God could take our next breath away. 
We're a steward of our life. We're a steward of our time. One thing we're going to see later on in another session is Ephesians 5 where Paul says redeem the time because the days are evil. Buy back the time. We've given enough time to the enemy. We need to redeem the time. You've been given physical resources. You're a steward of that. Jesus tells us to lay up our treasures in heaven. You've got a spiritual gift that you're responsible for. How are you doing at developing and using that? You've got a spiritual gift. If you're saved, you've got a spiritual gift. You and I are stewards of the ministry. You and I are stewards of the Word of God. Paul said, let a man consider us this way as stewards of the mysteries of God. And so we're stewards of everything. We own nothing. Now Paul asked on one occasion, what do you have that you did not receive? What's the answer to that question? Nothing. What what do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. It's all been given to you. James 1, every good and perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights. Everything that we have is a gift. Well, in our parable, the master gave out talents. It was a sacred trust. The word in trust here refers to what we would call today making somebody your power of attorney. When you make somebody your power of attorney, the the possessions are not theirs But they have a tremendous amount of authority and leadway to manage those possessions. They're your power of attorney. And that's how the master did. It's risky, but it's what the Lord did. Imagine this, folks. We have, in a sense, the power of attorney over God's work. It's His work. He's the one in charge But we have a lot to do, or say so, in how it's done. How we conduct ourselves. Now, a talent was a sum of money. Don't think think what's being described here is the ability to ride a unicycle in a circus. Okay? That's not what he's talking about here. A talent was a sum of money. And back in ancient times, even one talent was a fairly substantial amount of money. Uh, it was, it was a 20-year a, a salary for a common worker. Now, while a talent is a sum of money, it's clear in the story that He's just using all of this as an analogy. The talent of money is an analogy of all that we have. And so what would that include? So what? All that we have. What would that be? We've already named some things, right? Life, time, opportunities, money. Other assets and resources, spiritual assets and resources that we have. All of that could be said to follow under this description of a talent. And again, all we have is from God. We're blessed. Have you ever stopped to consider your blessings? We're blessed people. 
Now, let's think about diversity. Diversity in all this. In verse 15, look at, look at what we see there. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. There are differing responsibilities based on one's abilities. God knows what your abilities are and God knows what my abilities are. Somebody wisely once said, God doesn't try to pour a lake into a gallon bucket. He knows our abilities. The master didn't put on any one servant more than he could handle. Because what would that do to that servant? It would be discouraging, wouldn't it? It would be frustrating. God knows you intimately and God has put on you and God has put on me exactly what God in His sovereignty knows that you and I can handle. Now He challenges us, He stretches us, but what He doesn't do is overwhelm us. Folks, there was nothing wrong whatsoever in the fact that one servant only received one talent. The master knew him, the master respected him, and he only gave that servant what he believed that servant could handle. There's nothing wrong with being a one-talent type of person. Thank God for the one-talent type of people in the world. Thank God for them. There seems to be a whole lot more average Joes in the world than superstars. Have you noticed that? A lot more just common folk, right? And so if if you just see yourself as a one-talent kind of person, don't be ashamed of that at all. Don't be embarrassed about being a one-talent person for the Lord. Use that one talent for the glory of God. One can make a huge difference. In 1948, just one additional vote in each precinct would have elected Thomas Dewey as the president. In 1960, one vote in each precinct in one state, Illinois, would have elected Richard Nixon as president at the time. Thomas Jefferson was elected president by one vote in the Electoral College. So was John Quincy Adams. One vote gave statehood to California, Idaho, Oregon, Texas, and Washington. The Draft Act of World War II passed the House by one vote. When we put all of our ones together, great things can be done for the Lord. So don't neglect your talent if you just got one talent. One series of things. One one allotment. When When you look at everybody else and you think, Oh, they got so much more than me, I don't even need to bother with this. What I've got, it's so little. Yes, you do. So there's diversity. Not everybody has the same. Well, look at the responsibility. In the master's absence, what happened? Look, begin begin reading in verse 16 with me. It says, He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. 
So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Folks, there are choices before us. We can be wise stewards or we can be wasteful. Wise stewards or wasteful. We can be productive for the master or we can be lazy. What does God want to do? God wants to build his kingdom, to reach people, to build, to encourage, to minister. He gives us everything we need and everyone we need to do his work. God gives us what we need if we'll use it. It's like the pastor who told his congregation one Sunday, I've got an announcement to make this morning. We now have have all the funds that we need to pay off our debt. Everybody stood to their feet and clapped. Yay! He says, just in your wallets, we've got to figure out how to get it. (laughs) We have everything we need, all the resources that we need to do God's work. All the people that we need to do God's work that he's put on us. But we need to use what we have. Every person, whether they're a hand, a foot, an ear, an eye, whatever. Whether your gift is leadership or showing mercy or giving, or teaching, or exhortation, whatever your gift happens to be, in a body of believers made up of diverse different gifts that have been distributed, when everybody uses their spiritual gift together, the resources are pooled together, and people give to the Lord what's the Lord's, guess what? There's enough to get the Lord's work done. Amen? What are you doing with your gifts? What are you doing with your gifts? I told you one time a funny story. The man who came home, it was his 50th anniversary, and his wife said, she didn't think he'd got him, she didn't think he had got her anything. And that night at dinner, uh, he let her know that he had bought her a really, really, really nice cemetery plot. It's something they didn't have, and it was at a a cemetery where, I mean, they were known for their perpetual care. And she started thinking about it. She thought, well, you know, one of these days I am going to need that. And so she started looking at that gift a little differently. Next year rolled around. He didn't give her anything. She said, why not? He said, you ain't used the gift yet. I gave you last year. (laughs) Are you using your talents or are you burying your talents that God has given to you? You know, life marches on, doesn't it? Time marches on. Have you noticed that, how quickly things happen? What are you doing with your time? What are you doing with your resource? What are you doing with your talents? Are you using them or or burying them? Everybody says, oh, one of these days, one of these days, one of these days. Moses writes in Psalm 90, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. Life's gone before we know it. 
we might hit an age where we don't have the energy to do anymore for the Lord what we had at one time. And we thought decades, you know, I'm going to get around to doing this one of these days, one of these days, one of these days. And time slips up on us before we know it. We've got to be careful that that doesn't happen. Well, after the responsibility of seeing how they were all to do everything, I want you to see, uh, lastly, accountability here. Look beginning at verse 19. What does verse 19 say? Now, after a what? A long time. The master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Isn't that an interesting phrase? After a long time. You know, the early church expected Jesus to come back within within the first century. In fact, you go back and read 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and what were some of the people doing? They They were leaving their jobs... Becoming a burden on the rest of the church. They were going outside the city sitting on a hillside. Having prayer meetings looking up at the sky. Thinking Jesus was going to come back at any moment. And what they were doing. They were putting a strain on the rest of the congregation. Who was trying to take care of them. And Paul said if a man won't work. He won't eat. They were expecting Christ to come back. In a short period of time. But this phrase says, after a long time. After a long time. Now folks, we're always to be looking, but while we're looking, while we're looking for His return, we're to be working, we're to be abiding. Right here, Jesus was telling them, after a long time, He is going to return one day. Now, some people laugh and scoff at that. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter talks about all these scoffers that, you know, they laugh and, oh, the Lord's not going to return. The Lord's not going to return. He hasn't returned yet. Now, what what kind of stupid argument or logic is that? Because the Lord hasn't returned yet, He's not going to return. That's dumb logic, isn't it? But that's how some of them were being, you know. He hasn't returned yet. So evidently he's not going to return. Peter says, oh no, don't you misunderstand. One day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. God's reckoning of time is different than ours. And then he gives illustrations of how in the Bible God kept his word. He gives several illustrations about how God kept his word perfectly. And what he's saying there is every time in the Bible where we see that God has made a promise, God eventually came through on that promise. And so if God has promised that he's going to return, guess what? One of these days, he's going to return. And when he comes, I want you to write down 2 Corinthians 5.10 because that's the verse that says... For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now folks, if I'm right in my theology, believers will not stand before the great white throne judgment. Remember our series recently on Revelation. Great white throne judgment. Unbelievers that stand there. 
Believers will not be at the great white throne judgment. But believers will stand before the Bema seat of Christ. What, does anybody know what the Bema seat was in ancient times? The, the Olympics, right? And what about the ancient Olympics? And in and, and, and towns, in the, in the Greek and Roman towns where they had the games, uh, they would build this platform, the Bema seat. And in that town, that's where uh, the judges, the judicial uh, rulings and all would be handed down from the judgment seat. And in addition to the judges ruling from the Bema seat, in the games, that's where the, the judges of the games and, and the political leaders would be, and they would be watching the games, and, and the winner of the game would be called up to the Bema seat where he would get that crown. And Paul does say, you know, while we don't have to fear standing there one day at the great white throne judgment where heaven and earth flee away, nonetheless we will have to appear at the Bema seat and we will have to give an account of our lives before the Lord. Now we don't have to fear the loss of salvation because Romans 8.1 says there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ. But we will have to give an account of our lives. And that's where believers will receive the reward, the reward of their lives. Now I want you to notice here that faithfulness is rewarded. It's rewarded with commendation. The guy with five talents said, look, Lord, I've gained five more. What did he say? Well done, good and faithful servant. Imagine hearing that from the Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant. People love encouragement, don't they? They love encouragement. Imagine Jesus saying, well done. You did well with your life. With the resources I blessed you with, with the family I blessed you with, with the business I blessed you with, the income I blessed you with, spiritual gifts I blessed you with, you did well. Well done. Now, along with commendation, reward carried with it the opportunity of greater responsibility. Because he's been, he who has been faithful in a little is given more, right? Now, don't we do the same? Any of you business owners? Maybe you've got a good worker and then you've got a worker he wouldn't... He wouldn't hold down a job in a pie-tasting factory, as my dad used to say. Now, it comes time to give somebody a promotion. You can give that old lazy fella the promotion. No. Who are you going to give more responsibility to? The guy who's been faithful with what you've already entrusted to him, right? Right. God blesses those who have been responsible stewards with what they already have. And He blesses them with more. 
Folks in heaven, we are not going to be bored. We are going to be serving the Lord. And I think what God gives us to do is going to be based, in some measure at least, with how faithful we were with what He gave us to do on earth. Now, along with the greater responsibility, you'll notice also there was the joy of the Master. The joy of the master. And and notice how things are proportionate. The two-talent guy, for example, was rewarded because of what he did with five talents. True or false? False. The two-talent guy was rewarded based on what he did with what? Two talents. The five with what he did with his five. The two with what he did with his two. Folks, here's a problem. People want the reward without the service. They want the crown without the cross. It doesn't work that way, though. The Lord takes notice of the faithfulness over little things. Faithfulness in the little things doesn't escape His his watching eye. Now, look at the guy who just had the one talent. Look Look at what he did. He he said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and, and went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. He made excuses. And the excuse that he used was, if you think about it, was even more condemning Because he knew that he had the type of master that would reap where he had not sown. That's a picture of God's grace. God can can reap a harvest in the most unlikely of circumstances. And that should have been a good reason to have been a better steward. Because there's the promise of God being able to do even more than you can imagine. Not less, but God can do more. And so this guy didn't do, you'll notice he didn't do anything bad. He just did nothing. He did nothing. He didn't try to use or invest or develop what the Lord had blessed him with in any way. What's the the expression we use? Just putting the gift on the shelf, right? That's what he did with it. And he lived his life, you'll notice, out of fear. I was afraid. I was afraid. Doesn't that sound like a lot of people today? Oh, I can't do that. I know God wants me to do it, but I can't do that. I'm afraid to try that. That's the oldest excuse in the book, isn't it? I'm afraid. But the Lord saw right through that excuse. The bottom line line was that the guy wasn't simply afraid. He was lazy. He was lazy. I wonder how many church folks make excuses. We have the gift of salvation. Along with that gift, we've got a testimony. Every saved person has testimony. We also have a spiritual gift, at least one. And so all Christians have at least two things. I mean, if you're a Christian, you've got salvation, you've been saved by God's grace, and you've got a gift that you can use for Him. 
you got something you can use for the Lord even if you don't see it. This guy had something, but he did nothing with it. Notice he was in the company of the master's servants, the other servants, and he identified with them. You could say he was in the crowd, and he was given opportunity, and yet he did nothing. And what was Jesus' assessment? He was wicked, wicked or lazy. And what, what happened to him? He lost everything in the judgment. Look, look at what it says in verse, back to verse 16 and 17. Excuse me, verse 26 and 27. He says, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. And so take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have abundance but from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away. He had shown contempt for his master. He didn't know his master after all. Some scholars talk about, you know what this is a commentary on? This is a commentary on James chapter 2. Faith without works is dead. Now don't get me wrong. We are not saved by works. We're saved by, by faith. By God's grace through faith. But being saved by grace through faith. Our lives are changed. Our lives are different. And the fruit of our life and the work of our life shows that we do genuinely believe. That we're not just talking with our lips. This guy showed, he's a perfect illustration of what James is talking about there. It's our life, it's our stewardship, it's how we conduct ourselves, it's how we live our lives that shows the genuineness of our faith. And so we come full circle back around to realizing that we're stewards. Every one of us. We own nothing. We've been given everything we have. God's the owner. And one of these days, we're going to stand before the owner of the harvest, the Lord of the harvest. And we're going to have to give an account. For what type of household manager, what type of steward, what type of power of attorney we've been. I want to give you some lessons tonight. Lesson number one, to live is to be a steward. Folks, we're talking about something here that you can't get away from and I can't get away from. Like it or not, you are a, you are a steward. You're either a good steward or a bad steward. But, but you can't get away from, from stewardship because God has created things in His economy of the way he's done things in the world, to live is to be a steward. That's truth number one. Uh, lesson number two is we're not all equal stewards. 
And so we need to ask ourselves, what kind of steward am I? What am I doing with the master's business? Am I involved in the master's business? What am I doing with what he has blessed me with? We're not all equal stewards. This parable shows that. And then lesson number three. To say Jesus is Lord should impact your life in regards to how you live. How you spend, how you invest, and how you serve. If Jesus is truly Lord of your life, then that impacts what you do in every arena of your life. Amen? Everything. If He's Lord of your life, that impacts everything about your life. Everything. And so think of the implications in saying, Jesus is the Lord of my life. And then tomorrow morning, we'll get up And we'll do what we want to do, the way we want to do it, when we want to do it. That doesn't reflect lordship at all, does it? To say Jesus is Lord impacts what I do with everything that's been entrusted to me. You're rich and I'm rich. We've been made stewards, managers of God's resources. I want you to think this week about what you're doing with what you've been entrusted with. And beginning next week, we're going to to start looking at some different areas in particular. 